I love that song. Turn, turn with me if you would this evening for our, for our study, our message to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. I remember learning a little something growing up, and I got to the age that I realized <clears throat> I can't in good conscience sing that song. And I sat there and I sang during a service, what can wash away my sin? Nothing. Because I didn't know. The Lord hadn't shown me the blood of Jesus. Hmm. What can make me whole again? Nothing. Outside of the blood of Jesus, that's the answer. And I'm thrilled to be able to sit there and sing that song. I'm glad you picked that out, Sean. 1 Kings chapter 8. We're going to look at a few verses starting in, in verse 54. The title of the message comes from there in verse 56. In verse 56 it says, There hath not failed one word of all his good promise. There hath not failed one word of all his good promise. <clears throat> and God's promise to Israel here is a picture of God's promise to spiritual Israel today. And, and we can take comfort from, hopefully, we can, we can take comfort and, and, we, and we can see a picture of Christ and we can see a picture of God's mighty hand that not that hath not failed one word of all his good promise. And we can take comfort from that this evening also. I pray that we can we can see spiritual Israel in, in a in a in a picture of of, of, of Israel of physical Israel. God's promise to Israel again. It, it's a it's a picture of God's spiritual promise to to spiritual Israel, and and I hope that we can see that. So as we read through these few verses, we're going to read through verses fifty four to sixty one. As we read through these few verses, look for five points as we read through. What was promised? What was promised to Israel? And to whom was the promise made? To whom? Who promised? That's what's important in any promise, right? Who, who promised? When was that promise fulfilled? And number five, what was the response? What was the response? So, so look for those as, as we read through, uh, starting here in, in 1 Kings chapter 8, starting in 54. And it was so, that when Solomon had made an end of praying all, all this prayer and supplication unto the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven, and he stood and blessed all the congregation of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord that had given rest unto his people Israel. According to all he promised, there hath not failed one word of all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us, as he was with our fathers, let him not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts unto him, that he may incline our hearts unto him, that he may incline our hearts unto him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments which he commanded our fathers. And let these my words, wherewith I have made supplication before the Lord, be nigh unto the Lord our God day and night, that he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel at all times as the matter shall inquire, or require, that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God, and that there is none else, 
Let your heart, therefore, be perfect with the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments, as at this day. What was promised? And to whom was the promise made? Who promised? When was that promise fulfilled? And what was the response? <clears throat> what was promised? So we read through, read through here, verse 56 says, Bless the Lord that hath given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. What was promised? To, to, to look at that, look back with me to Exodus uh, chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. We'll, we'll look at the promise that, that God made. Blessed be the Lord that had given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. What was promised? When we read through here in, in, in Exodus 6, look how, how God promised. He promised he was going to give them a land. He'll give them a land. He'll rid them of bondage. He's going to redeem them. He's going to take them to himself for a people. He's going to cause them to know him as the Lord, their God. And he's going to bring them to the land. Look, look at these promises here that, that the Lord makes here in Exodus chapter 6. Starting in verse 1, we'll read the eight verses. Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand shall he let them go. With a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. And God spake unto Moses, said unto him, I am the Lord. I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, but by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. For I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. Listen to all the I wills here. Wherefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage. I will redeem thee with a stretched out arm, with great judgments. I will take you to me for a people. I will be to you a God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you, I will bring you in unto the land, concerning the which I did swear to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for inheritance. I am the Lord. Listen to, to all those promises, right? He promised that he was going to give them the land. He promised he was going to rid them of bondage. He promised he was going to re redeem Israel. He promised he was going to take them to himself for a people. He promised he was going to reveal himself to them as their God. He was going to cause them to know him as their God. And he promised he was going to bring them all the way into the land. He gave them the land. He gave them the land not, not to dwell in as, as strangers or, or, or as slaves. And that's all some of these had, had ever been, right? They were, they were born slaves. That's all they had ever known was being a slave. And the Lord promised them, I'm going to give you a land. Not to wander around in as a slave, not to have to slink around in, not to have cordoned off places where you couldn't go. As a, as a free man, I'm going to give you the land. They were free men. They were, they, were, they were promised to be free men in the land of Canaan. Can you just imagine how that must have, what they must have imagined as, as slaves, to, to tell a slave, try to explain to a slave what it's like to be a free man. I mean, the, the Israelites must not have even been able to imagine it. 
to be able to come and go as I please, to be able to own land, to, to be able to set my own schedule, to be a free man. They, how could they have even imagined, even, even to hear this promise? Again, these Israelites were slaves, and, and many had, had been slaves all their lives. They, they had never owned land. They had never belonged. To be told, I'm going to give you a land, and, and, and the land is fit for you. You belong there, and you're fit for the land. You, to, to belong someplace. Can you imagine what they must, must have been thinking to, to hear? I'm going to, I'm going to give you a land where, where you'll belong, the land that's right for you and, and that, that you're right for the land. I imagine they couldn't even picture it. How could they? How could they? And look, still here in, in Exodus 6, look in verse 9. Moses spake so, the children, so unto the children of Israel, but they hearkened not unto Moses for anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. They couldn't even listen to him. They couldn't even imagine. They, they couldn't believe it was too good to be true, right? That they would be, they would be given a land. They, they couldn't even picture it. Physical Israel couldn't even imagine being free. They were born in bondage. And isn't that a picture of us? Isn't that a picture of our spiritual self? We're, we're, we're born in, in bondage to sin. We're slaves to sin. Romans 7 says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. I'm a slave. I can't even imagine what it is to be a free man to be given a land, to be made meat for the land, and for the land to be made meat for me spiritually. I can't even imagine. But God promises spiritual Israel a land where his people are not slaves, but rather they belong. You listen to things. We shouldn't. You, you hear things on TV. You hear things on TV. Just all the time. Dang on it. And you hear people being cute, talking about slinking in the back door of heaven. Hmm. That's not God's children. God's children don't slink, slink in the back door of heaven. No one gets by by the skin of their teeth. It's Christ's work. God's children belong with him because they're made holy because of Christ's work. No longer slaves, but rather children. Children. They're made meat for the land. It's spiritual Israel. It, it's an inheritance. God's people are, are made to stand in, in the land, not as slaves, but again, as children who belong just as the children of Israel belonged. What did God promise? He, he promised to give them a land. He promises spiritual Israel to give us a land where we belong with him. What else did he promise? He, he promised to rid them of bondage. Uh, turn over, stay in Exodus, but turn to, to chapter 14. Keep a marker there in Exodus 6. We're going to come back to that quite a bit. But Over in, in, in Exodus 14, God freed the children of Israel from Egyptian bondage. But when were they, excuse me, when were they freed? When was Israel freed from this bondage? Now, I know Pharaoh said he'd release them, right? And the children of Israel fled. And Pharaoh said he'd release them after all the plagues, but he didn't. He still had a claim on them. They were still his. They were, Israel was still Pharaoh's. And even though he let them go, he had he changed his mind and he went out back after them, right? So when when was when were the, the children of Israel really freed from from bondage? Again, Pharaoh still had a claim on them. They were they were still his slaves. Look here in Exodus fourteen in in, uh, in verse ten. When Pharaoh drew nigh, 
The children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them, and they were sore afraid. The children of Israel cried out unto the Lord. They were, they were sore afraid. Do you, do you ever feel that way about your sin? I do. Do you ever feel that way about your sin? That it's, it's going to keep me captive forever. When were they finally freed from their bondage? Look down further to, to verse 28. The children of Israel were, were brought through the Red Sea by, by God. And the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. There remained not so much as one of them. That's when the children were freed from bondage. When Pharaoh was absolutely abolished. When he was gone. When he was destroyed. So he had no claim left on the children of Israel. When were these children of Israel finally, finally free from their bondage? when Pharaoh was gone and had no more claim on them. Spiritual Israel is free from the bondage of sin the exact same way. When? when? Not until sin is destroyed, because where sin is, sin will always have a claim. Where sin is, sin will always have a claim. But Christ abolished sin, just as God abolished Pharaoh and wiped him from the face of the earth, wiped him from existence so that there was no more claim on the existence. Christ has abolished, absolutely put away sin, abolished sin. Hebrews said, Christ appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He came to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Colossians says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. That's when sinners are made free from the bondage of sin. That's when, what did God promise Israel? To rid them of bondage. What does is, what is God promise spiritual Israel in Christ? To rid us of the bondage of sin because Christ has put away sin. It's gone. There's no more, there's no more claim. Christ took the sin of his people in his body on the tree and, and with his perfect sacrifice abolished sin. Gone forever. God says as far as the east is from the west, right? Gone so that there is no more claim on spiritual Israel released from the bondage, just as physical Israel was, was released from the bondage. Just as the physical Israel wasn't, wasn't free from that bondage until Pharaoh was completely wiped off the face of the earth. It was no more. Pharaoh was gone. Sinners can never be free from sin's curse and from that spiritual death unless sin is absolutely abolished. And that's found only in Christ. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Just as physical uh, Israel saw the same thing. When Christ abolished sin by taking the sin off of his people and into his own perfect body. So he said that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we're healed. I'll give them a land. A land that's fit for them and a land that they're fit for. I'll free them from bondage. God redeemed Israel. He redeemed Israel. He took them uh, for, for himself as a people, and he caused them to know that he was their, the, the Lord, their God. Now just, just, pardon that word, but solely, only freeing Israel from bondage, would have been that, that would have been wonderful. 
right? If, if that's all God did with physical Israel was free them from that bondage, that, that's more than they could have even imagined to ask for, right? But what does Ephesians 3 say? Ephesians 3 says he's able to do, say he's able to do all that we ask or think. Well, Ephesians 3 says he's able to do above all that we ask or think. But it says he's able to do abundantly above all that we ask or think. Ephesians 3 says he's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. Asking to be, to be, to be free from, from sin, to be free from bondage, is more than we would ever in our wildest dreams imagine to even ask for. But Christ does more, exceeding abundantly above more. Not only did, did Christ free Israel from bondage, he took them to himself for a people. He caused them to know him as the Lord their God, he, to, to, to know and, and, and to love. Not only a head knowledge, we have a, more than a head knowledge of our spouses. There's, there's, a, there's an intimate knowledge. There's a, there's a knowing. He caused them to know. He causes Israel. He, our God causes Israel to, to know him intimately as the Lord their God. He gave them a knowledge of his character. He gave them a knowledge of, of his holiness. He took them as his people and he gave them eyes to see him and, and, and hearts to believe him and ears to hear him. He gave them life. He caused them to know that, that, that he's the Lord, their God. He freed them from bondage. He did. But he also made them a people unto him, exceeding abundantly above all that they, that they possibly could have asked or, or thought. Just as spiritual Israel is free from that curse of sin, but is also made alive in Christ made alive and, and, and made to know him as the Lord our God. Made his people. He claims us. You think of all the relationships that, that the Bible references because one human relationship can't possibly describe our relationship with Christ. He, he calls himself our, our spouse, he, our, our, our brother, our friend. I mean, such dear relationships. Not only quote-unquote, not that that's a little, that's a lot, freed from the curse of sin, freed from bondage, but also given life in an, in a, in an intimate heart knowledge of him, exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever have asked or, or thought. He made us a people unto him. Hebrews 8 says, I will be their God, they shall be my people. My people. First Peter says, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God. That's what he calls us. That's what he calls spiritual Israel. He calls them the people of God, which hath not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Vessels of of mercy. He freed them. He gave them a land. He removed them from bondage. He, he revealed himself as the Lord, their God. He made them his people and revealed to them that relationship. And he didn't leave them there. Exodus 6 says that he brought them all the way to the land. He brought them to the land. I was just so 
struck by that, that he didn't provide a way. He did provide a way <laughs> through Christ. That he, he carried his people the entire way and brought them to the land. Not one step left for his people. He provided them a land. He freed them from bondage. He revealed himself to them and he brought them all the way and planted them in the land. Brought them the whole way. He brought them to the land. Philippians 1 says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He, he, he purposed the work. He began the work. He did the work. Christ completed the work. Christ did it all. It all. Just as I was so struck by that. Not only did God free Israel, he, he gave them the land, he redeemed them, he took them to himself, he made them known as their God, and he didn't leave it up to them to find the rest of the way to the land. No, <laughs> he brought them all the way to the land. He did it all. And for spiritual Israel, there's no difference. This is a picture of spiritual Israel. For spiritual Israel, Christ did it all. It all. It's all of God. He separates Israel. He calls. He determines. He saves. He sanctifies. He redeems. He cleanses. He purifies. He draws. He saves. He pardons. <clears throat> he preserves. Was it? I believe it was Bruce that says that, that we persevere. He, he preserves. <laughs> We are preserved. We, we persevere because he preserves us, right? He preserves, therefore we persevere. He provides the land and he brings us there. There's, there's nothing, there's no burden on the sinner. No burden. And there can't be, there's no part left to the sinner. And only a sinner who is revealed is a sinner can come that way and ask for that kind of mercy, that kind of care, that kind of, of, of power, and, and to beg for that kind of mercy. When we come to the throne of mercy, that's the throne we come to. And we say, you must, God, God, you must do it all. You must do it all. I, I can do nothing. You must, you must do it all. And he does. We believe and we bow, and, and we've heard from this pulpit so many times, Sinner that comes to, to, to a holy God on those terms has always been accepted, always will be accepted. We believe. We bow. That's our part. We, we, we bow to that, to that authority and that power and that the goodness. It, it, it's the goodness of God. Can you imagine that kind of power on this earth? How, how awful that would be in the hands of one person? Because we're so corrupt. You've all heard the phrase. Daddy used to say it a lot. He'd say power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Right? The, 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 the more power that's in the hand of a man, the worse it's going to be. Not so with our God. Infinite, ultimate power. Backed by his good and, and generous and merciful character. He brought them to the land. He brought them all the way to it. Brought them all the way in it. That's what was promised. To whom? To whom was, was promised? Back, back there in, in uh, Exodus 6. Exodus 6, 6 says, Wherefore say unto the children of Israel. That's who the promise is made to. Unto the children of Israel. The, the promise is exclusively and only 
only to the children of Israel. You know, this isn't just a doctrinal issue that we that we hang our hats on, separates ourselves from others. I, I'll admit, um, you, if this is just an intellectual doctrine, we'll use it from a sense of pride just to argue with people. We will. Um, I did it as a freshman in college. I remember distinctly. You're getting into good arguments with people about Calvinism. Uselessness. Uselessness. Is this just a doctrine for us to argue about? Election. Predestination. Another thing my dad used to talk about was the ugliness of pride. And he would say, pride is ugly. There's there's pride of race, pride of face, pride of place, but the worst is pride of grace. That's the worst. That that. That pride of grace is, is limited atonement for a particular people, just, just a doctrinal stance for us to argue about. Something that I can dig my heels into, and, and, and of course, of course it's not. But it is important. Um, turn over to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, um, chapter seven. Did God choose Israel? Because of, because of some redeeming quality in them? Because of something that, that, that he needed that they would bring to the table? Deuteronomy chapter, uh, chapter 7. Look here in verse, verses 6 and 7. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. For you are the fewest of all people. It's important. Doctrine of election is, is, is vital because it gives credit to whom credit is due. Gives, gives credit to, to our God. There's no redeeming quality in sinners. Says you, in fact, not only were you not the most of the people, you were the fewest. Not only was I not the best of people, I was the worst. A vessel of mercy. And that's what every sinner is, is, is an example, not of their own goodness so that God would choose them. They're a picture of God's goodness that he would condescend to choose them. You're the least of people. That doctrine of election is, again, that's vital because it, it, it gives credit to, to, to whom credit is due. No redeeming quality in sinners. Verse 6, there, it says, because he would. Because he would. That's why. Salvation begins and ends ends with God alone. Because he would. I had to pick up some cream for something Gavin's got on his hand. And you look at all the ingredients and all the, all the cream. It's ingredient, 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 right? And then at the end it says active ingredient. And I always think to myself, why don't they just make that? Well, if, if the active ingredient is what we need, won't they make something with just that in it? What's all this other stuff? Left to ourselves, and, and this is a just a proof of our fallen, dead nature that we inherited through our fallen Adam. We think we're the active ingredient in salvation, and, and, and we're most certainly not. We're not the active ingredient. We're not the catalyst in no way, shape, or form. If we love him, what a gift that is. It's because he first loved us. Not only is he the beginner and, and, and the, 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 the performer of the work and the end of the work, 
He's all of it. <laughs> he's, he's all three without, without any input from us. We're the recipient. We're the recipient of his work, just as the children of Israel here were. Because of his goodness alone. That's why. So to whom was it promised? To the people he chose, because this is God's work. To the people he chose. Who promised? Third point, who promised? God promised. The value of a promise, because you know, we see there in, in Exodus 6, you know, the Lord said unto Moses, and how many times did he say, I will, I will, I will. This is a one-way contract. I will, God says. God promised. And the, and the value of, of, of any promise is 100% dependent on who's making the promise, right? Is Whoever's making the promise, do, do they have the authority to make that promise? Do they have the right? Do they have the power to make it happen? If they don't have the right to make the promise, they don't have the power to make it happen. The promise is no good, right? Do they have the character and the, and the will to make it happen? Unless someone has the right to do it, the power to do it, and the character and the will to do it, the promise is useless. The promise is dependent on the person making the promise, right? I remember one time in the parking lot, Danny and Lorelai let us drive their fancy sports car. Danny let me take Gavin for a ride in that vet. Now, if I turned around and promised, y'all want to take a ride in that vet? Go right ahead. I can make that promise all day long. It's not my car, right? <laughs> Ask the person whose car it is. Ask Danny and Lorelai. Maybe they will. I don't have the authority to make that promise. I don't have the right. It's not my car. person has to have the authority to make the promise, the, the, the power, the right to, to make it happen, and they have to have the, the, the will, the character to make it happen. For spiritual Israel, who is that? We, we know that that's, that's Christ. Who Only the Lord Jesus Christ has the right to forgive because he's God himself. We've offended God. Who has the right to forgive other than God himself? only found in our Lord Jesus Christ, has the right, has the authority to, to, to forgive sin. Only the Lord Jesus Christ has the power to forgive sin as he was the perfect sacrifice, made sin for his people. He who knew no sin, took sin, made sin for his people, that his people be made the righteousness of God in him. Only our Lord Jesus Christ has, has the power to forgive sin. When he took all the weight, he took all the guilt. He took all the punishment. As a man, he paid that sin. He paid that debt as a man himself. Only the Lord Jesus Christ has the character and has that will to make it happen. It's only in his character. Where else can you find? It's in his character to delight to show mercy to sinners. It's only found in our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the authority, the power, and the character to forgive. Who promised? That's important. Who, who's making the promise here? God promises. And to spiritual Israel, God's promise is fulfilled in, in Christ alone. Fourth point. When was the promise fulfilled? <clears throat> in time. Back again to Exodus 6. And we, we, we look at all those I wills, and this time when you listen to all those I wills, as we read through verses 6 to 8, listen to those I wills. But with God, the, the I will isn't a function of time. When I say I will, Ralph, I'll call you tomorrow. It's a function of time. 
I'll, I'll, I will call you tomorrow. But, but not so. Not so with, with, with our Lord. It's, it's not a reference at all to time. We speak relative to time, but God's not relative to time. He created time. Time's relative to him. Turn, well, for, yeah, first let, let's listen to those. So, uh, Exodus 6, starting in, in verse 6. Wherefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rid you out of their bondage. I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. I will take you to me for a people. And I will be to you a God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. It's not a function of time. It's a function of purpose. He's sharing his purpose. So when, when was the, was the promise fulfilled? Turn over to uh, Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 12. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he. I am the first. I also am the last. Mine hand also laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has spanned the heavens. When I called unto them, they stand up together. Spanned the heavens. That's, that's the span of your hand right there. His hand spanned the heavens. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's, he's the first. He's also the last. Revelation says, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and I'm the end. Time is relative to him. He's not relative to time. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. When, when Christ said to the soldiers in the garden, I am, and, and, and he declared that eternal existence, I am, what did the soldiers do? They fell backwards. They fell down backwards, right? Now, why is this, this comforting to us? That, that God's not relative to time, but rather time is relative to him. That when he says, I will, he's not talking about time. He's, talking, he's revealing his purpose. I will. Because if it's God, if it's God who's making the promise and willing the promise and, and working the promise, and God never changes, and his will never changes, and God is not bound by time, and if all those things are true, and they are, shouldn't we go through our day with a little bit more peace? Shouldn't I? Shouldn't I go through my day with more peace? If, if I know those things, God is not bound by time. God is bound only by his own goodness. And God never changes. So when he says, I will, should I sit fretting, waiting for it to happen? Of course not. I should go through my day with a lot more peace. You've heard this example before. I, I, I know my dad taped football games. I believe Cecil taped basketball games, didn't he? Did he only watch them if Kentucky won? <laughs> dad only watched Michigan football if Michigan won. Easy to watch a game if you already know the outcome, right? So when, when Michigan's down 40, if he already knows that they won, you're just sitting there waiting for the comeback. As should we be, right? As should we be. Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. When he says, I will, he's just revealing his purpose. It's a function of time to us. But we know the outcome. We already know the outcome because of God's goodness. We already know the outcome. Time always makes me uneasy because time always changes things. 
day by day. Now that Facebook is a thing, that's a reminder when those Facebook memories come up from 10 years ago, you're like, my goodness, how things have changed. Time changes things constantly, but God does not change. When God says, I will, his purpose does not change. I can take comfort in that. I don't need to know what the outcome is. I know who holds the outcome. And I know that he has promised his goodness to me. He's, he's promised. All things work together for good to them who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. He's promised. I know the outcome. And I know who holds it. I should go through my day with a lot more peace. That gave me comfort studying. It's his purpose. All those I wills, I will, I will, I will, is him revealing his purpose to those children of Israel. Not a function of time. It's his purpose. Israel can take comfort in that fact that when the promise was purposed, that's when it was fulfilled. When it was purposed, that's when it was fulfilled. It's not a function of time. It's a function of purpose. When God purposed it, it was fulfilled. It was done. Time can't change that because the God who purposed it is irrelevant to time. I hope you all find comfort in, in that. That point just stuck with me for the past couple of days and in, in our experience of time, each promise will be fulfilled. I tell you when it's going to be fulfilled in our time. It's going to be fulfilled when it's best for us. That's when it's going to be fulfilled. Israel was delivered when it was best for Israel. Will be delivered when it's best for us. God promises that. I quoted it earlier. All things work together for them who love God, to them who are the called, according to his purpose, according to his will. In our experience of time, it'll happen when it's best for us. Second Peter says, but, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. One day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is his one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some, some men count slackness. But he's long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Proverbs says, a, a man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Lamentations says, the Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It's good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Does that mean there in Lamentations that, that we suffer silently? Do I have to quietly wait and just suffer silently? No, no. We, we share with each other so that we can encourage each other with these words. I share with you so you can tell me, Jonathan, wait on the Lord. You can remind me, right? You, you can remind me, Jonathan, wait on the Lord. He's good. His will doesn't change. His purpose hasn't changed. But it's good that we wait on the Lord and see his salvation and see his power and see his goodness. Wise man once told me in the midst of a trial, he was our pastor actually, and he told me, when I look back at the trials in my life, I, I don't see the trials. I see the Lord's sweetness to me. Not always easy to see when you're in the middle of it, but it's still true. It's true nonetheless. And we remind ourselves of that. When, when we share our burdens with each other, we remind ourselves, the Lord is good, even if it doesn't feel so right now. The Lord is good. His will doesn't change. His goodness doesn't change. His power hasn't changed. It's still altogether in his hands. 
We remind ourselves of that, and it's good for us to wait on the Lord and see his goodness and his sweetness to us. <clears throat> Look back in First uh, Kings again, chapter 8. What is, what is our response? First Kings here, uh, chapter 8. What, what is our response? Our response is the same as the Israelites. Uh, look down in, in verses 62 and 63. And the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered unto the Lord. 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. That's a sacrifice. 140,000 animals. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. What did the, what did the children of Israel do? What, what's their response to the Lord fulfilling his promises? They, same as our, our response should be the same as theirs. They prayed and they looked to the sacrifice. And I imagine when they looked to the sacrifice, Second Chronicles said that, that fire came down from heaven and devoured that sacrifice, 140,000 animals. Fire came down from the, from the sky and devoured that sacrifice. And I imagine the people of Israel were amazed by the sacrifice and amazed by the God that accepted. And that's our response to, to the promises of God being fulfilled. We look and we look to the sacrifice and we should certainly be no less amazed when we speak of Christ and, 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 and the, the miracle of salvation and, and the work that he did that only Christ could do. We should be no less amazed than the children of Israel watching that fire come down from heaven, should we? Shouldn't we stand here amazed that God would see fit to commune with us on a Wednesday night here together with us through my mouth? For pity's sake, what a... We should, it's more, it's significantly more amazing than 140,000 animals getting swallowed up by fire. This is amazing that God would see fit to commune with us through Christ. That's the, that's the response. The response is that we, we see the sacrifice and we're amazed. We see the God that accept, accepts the sacrifice and we're thankful. And they rejoiced for eight days, I believe it was, and then they all went back to their cities as happy as they can be, just as we do most times when we leave here and we go back to our house in the evening, isn't your heart lighter? Mine often is. And we go back rejoicing. Our response to spiritual Israel's response to God's promises being fulfilled is the same as physical Israel's. They're amazed by the sacrifice. They're amazed by the God that accepts it. And they go back to their houses happy and rejoicing. The Second Chronicles said, Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, this fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house and the priests couldn't enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, this is our response, they bowed down. They bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and they worshiped and they praised the Lord saying, for he is good, his mercy endureth forever. That was their response, and that's our response. Because all the promises of God for, for spiritual Israel in Christ, what does the scripture say? There says they're yea and amen. What was promised? He gave them the land. He 
he, he gives us a land where we're, we're, we're meat for the land and land is, is meat for us. We're made meat for the land. Land is meat for us. He gives us the land. He, he frees us from bondage in Christ. He redeems us from the burden of, of, of sin in Christ. He takes us to himself for a people in Christ. He reveals himself as, as our Lord God. He reveals himself to us in Christ. He brings us to the land and puts us there. All in Christ. Who made the promise? God makes the promise. It's fulfilled in Christ. When was the promise fulfilled? It was, it was fulfilled when the Lord first willed it before the foundation of the world. The lamb slain before the foundation of the world because to will isn't a function of time. To will is a function of purpose. And he purposed it before the foundation of the world even began. What's our response? The same as the Israelites. We'll pray and give thanks. Because in Christ, all of God's promises are yea and amen. And we can, we can say amen to that. Okay, I hope that's been a blessing. Let's, let's pray before Sean comes and leads us in a closing song. Our Holy Heavenly Father, I, I, I pray that, that you bless your word according to your will and that you don't leave us alone as you promised. We, we pray for your, for your promises, that you fulfill your promises and, and that the work that you began, you, you you don't end. You don't don't leave it unfinished, but rather finish the work. Bring us all the way to you. Keep us and hold us. We pray for our pastor and, and, and for Janet as they travel. Pray that you bring them home safely to us. Pray for ourselves that, that you hold and keep this congregation and, and keep us faithful to, to declare your message and, and only your message. Don't leave us to ourselves. We pray this thankfully in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.